Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. Today on the State of Ukraine, how do you parent a child in the middle of a war? I'm Greg Dixon. What if, in the middle of all the normal parenting difficulties, you had to decide how much to tell your kindergartner about the war happening in their country? Would you explain everything? Or would you try to shield them from the trauma in hopes of providing a normal childhood? NPR's Alyssa Nadwerny joins me here. Hey, Alyssa. Hi, Greg. So you've been reporting on a group of kindergartners in Ukraine for months, right? That's right, yep. So today on the episode, we're going to take the time to hear a longer story you reported on these kids. So the story starts in a classroom? That's right. In the city of Kharkiv in northeast Ukraine, there is a kindergarten classroom. It has bright yellow and green walls with little beds and little chairs. Once it was a magical place where children played chess and grew flowers and learned and laughed. Where each day for 27 little six-year-olds started with a hug. But in an instant, on a Wednesday last February, war came to Kharkiv. Russian forces are invading Ukraine. And everything for those six-year-olds changed. Now, here's the story of what happened in the year after. When I first saw that bright green classroom, the one nicknamed Zalushka, which means Cinderella, it was covered in broken glass. It was August, and the school building had been hit by Russian artillery. There weren't any students there, but two teacher's aides were injured. So you can see the blood stains. The head of school, Yana Sayanko, toured me around the colorful school. Under the layers of dust and debris, this green classroom was filled with things that hinted at life before. A chess game open mid-match, the little beds with stuffed animals on the pillows, and the lunch menu from the day of the invasion still hung up on the wall. Buckwheat soup and cabbage that was never served. Sayanko opens a row of lockers to find they're still filled with clothes and shoes. No. <laughs> and a drawing of a snowman. As I was leaving, Yana said to me, It's not the damage to the school that I'm mourning. It's the destruction of childhood. I couldn't stop thinking about what had happened to the children who once learned here. How were each of these six-year-olds figuring out how to live and learn and be a kid while their home is at war? Over the next weeks and months, I set out to find them. Hello. <laughs> Hello. The students in this kindergarten, they are scattered all across the world and Ukraine. Okay, will you tell me your name? In Germany and Poland. What do you remember from your kindergarten? We have many flowers. In Spain. Hola, Aurora. Hola. And in the U.S. I have friends, three of them. Today, the story of two who stayed in Ukraine. Just one remained in the city of Kharkiv. Yeah. What's your name? In September, translator Hanna Palomarenko and I returned there to meet Sofia Kuzmina on the playground that separates her family's apartment building from the kindergarten. Yeah. Sofia is confident and tall. She wears half her blonde hair in a knot at the top of her head. She bypasses the brightly colored wooden seesaw and the metal merry-go-round and heads for a row of bushes, 
where she begins to collect leaves and sticks. The playground is no fun when you're all alone. And Kharkiv, with nightly shelling, is pretty empty. Her mom, Natalia, is watching on a nearby bench. Who do you think she's talking to? She's talking to herself, her mom says. During the war, Sofia's had to get used to playing on her own. Sofia hands her mom a pile of leaves. Natalia says despite the danger, she can't even imagine moving and living elsewhere. For Sofia, now in the first grade, school is all online, and it's completely different from her beloved kindergarten. Are the colors different? Yeah, I don't know the color of walls in school. Yeah, because you can't see them. Natalia explains that before the invasion, Sofia was social, calm, a leader. And the war, it's really taken a toll on her. She's overly emotional, acting out, argumentative. And Natalia's been doing everything she can to shield her. They don't even talk about the war. Her job is to put Sofia to bed before the nightly attacks, so she sleeps through it. And she'll lie if she has to. That explosion? Oh, that's just a car. That's construction. Alyssa, I just want to pause in your story here to just think about what we heard. We have this, you know, parents in a city that has at times been very, very close to the front line, Kharkiv, with her daughter. Mm -hmm. And she's just, she's trying to shield her daughter as much as possible from this war. Is that a sustainable choice? We're we're hearing air raid sirens. Well, you know, the thing is, Sophia knows what's going on, right? I mean, in the days after the invasion, her family left and went to a country house. It was short-lived. They came back to Kharkiv. But Sophia knows that her life has changed because there's a war. And even her mom, Natalia, told me many times they fail at hiding the explosions or the sounds of the war from her. And Sophia hears them and she cries. So I think that this is, it's a strategy that they've decided Sometimes it fails, but the reality is these are really hard choices. This is kind of like what they decided they'd do, and they're sticking with that. I'm sure they just – they want their kid to be able to be a kid even even as the war goes on around them. But this isn't the only family in this kindergarten who's making this choice, right? That's right, yes. Natalia is one of 27 families, and they're all having to make these really hard decisions. One of the ways that they do that, she told me, was through a group chat. So this is a, a chat of all the parents in this kindergarten. They've had it since before the war. And it's basically a record of kind of like everything that's happened since the Russian invasion. And one of the things that they've done in the last six months is used this chat to pose these questions to each other, to talk about their experiences. You know, she showed me the text and they say, Things like, my kid is scared, my kid is sad, my kid misses the kindergarten. And so it's been this way of support, but also of connection. Let's hear a little more. Bogdan Simonoha's mom, Victoria, is an active member of that chat. Frequently sending videos of her son. We took the train across the country to visit them, far from the front line in the western Ukrainian city of Lviv, near the border with Poland. And Bogdan's family, they've taken a very different approach from Sofia's. My children know everything, Victoria explains, as she sits on the couch with Bogdan, quizzing him. 
Who made you leave Kharkiv? she asks. Who made Ukrainians leave their home? she asks. Putin. And what are we doing now? We are punching them in the teeth, Bogdan says. They left Kharkiv in a panic last winter. Bogdan's dad stayed behind, assisting the military in their defense. The rest of the family is now living in a friend's apartment here in Lviv. They say it's the safest place to be still in Ukraine. Bogdan grew up in an instant, his mom says. We didn't have time for filtering things. He was anxious, started to regress, biting things, sucking things. Unlike Sophia's mom, Victoria felt telling him everything, that might help him get some power, some control back. Soha is sharing his new life with his kindergarten friends from Kharkiv. He's been sending videos to that group chat. What is this one? That was the first day of school? Unlike Sofia, Bogdan's new school in Lviv is in person. It's closer to normal, at least on days when learning is not interrupted by power outages, air raid sirens, or missile attacks. Bogdan shows us the shelter. Today, there was a drill, and in just five minutes, all 500 students made it down here. Over the next several months, translator Hannah Palmarenko and I stayed in touch with these families. Yeah, I wanted to call you back. Because, Here is the uh, message from uh, Victoria Siminucha, uh, Bogdan's mom. There was a massive missile attack. The lights went off and they could hear the messages from Natalia Kuzmina. She says, good evening. We're still in Kharkiv. We have power cuts, uh, usually without warning. <laughs> he says, like, our soldiers are brave and they... I returned to Ukraine in January, and things in Kharkiv had gotten better. A counteroffensive in the fall pushed back Russian forces. But constant missile attacks to the country's power grid remain a big challenge. When we visit Sofia's apartment, there's no power. So we have to take the stairs to the 10th floor. There are battery-powered Christmas lights strung up in the entryway. It's so pretty. <laughs> they are practical and beautiful, Natalia says. They've gotten used to the power outages. There are flashlights in all their pockets. They don't use the fridge or freezer. They boil water and keep it in a thermos. During our visit, Sophia is scheduled to be in her first grade class online. But like many days, the power outage means it's not happening. Even after all this time, that green kindergarten class is the school she thinks about. Her mom tells us she still talks about it in the present tense. When do you think about kindergarten? When? I think about the kindergarten before I fall asleep at night. I remember how it was, and I dream about what it would be if we were all back. Sophia, I want to show you some photos. Bogdan is my group. I show her photos on my phone of her classmates that I visited, of Bogdan in his new classroom. So what would you say to your friends around the world who wonder how you're doing and what your life is like? I would tell them to come back, she says, because I'm bored. But she's actually a lot less bored than she was six months ago when she made that salad on the empty playground. Singing lessons have resumed in person. 
And so have dance lessons. Sophia is surrounded by a dozen girls in tights practicing splits and spins. Even after all this time, her mom Natalia is still shielding her from the war. I've heard that parents who tell their children everything about the war are now looking for a psychologist, she tells us. Of course, Sophia sees some things, but I'm doing my best to isolate her so she doesn't know about the news. What about you? Me, I just look out the window, she says, and see the smoke. I'm still thinking about that two weeks later, when we're all the way across Ukraine, driving home from school with Bogdan and his mom. An air raid siren goes off, and Bogdan leans forward in his car seat and asks his mom, Does that mean there are missiles above us? I don't think so, she tells him. But what if they can get us, he squeaks. Victoria reassures him it's okay. She often does this when he gets anxious or stressed. But she's also adamant that Bogdan doesn't forget what's happening in his country. A few blocks from their apartment, we stop at the Lichakiv Cemetery. The family comes here frequently to honor those who have died in the war. We walk along the rows of freshly dug graves, the mounds of dirt covered in ribbons with pictures and flowers, a slight dusting of snow lingering on the petals. I want my son to see this, Victoria says, to feel this sacrifice. With Bogdan in tow, they approach a family here, standing at the end of one of the grave sites. At their feet, a portrait of a young man in uniform. Victoria and Bogdan stand with the family for a moment. Bogdan holds his mom's hand. He's quiet. As we walk back to the car, his mom is in tears. How many people are there? They are somebody's sons, husbands, fathers. Bogdan says somebody's uh, grandchildren, grandsons. It makes Victoria feel helpless. She doesn't want to shield him from this pain, from this hate that she feels. She thinks of Bogdan, of his classmates, children who may not get a say in their future. A generation shaped by war. Well, Alyssa, that's a really... <laughs> you reacting to your last line? Yeah. I mean, it's like, I lived that story, like, reporting it, but even hearing it just, like, makes me sad. How do you feel about these kids? I mean, I care about them so much, and it's just hard to, to hear just all the choices that they're making and just, like, how hard this is for both the parents and the kids. Yeah, and it makes me sad. <laughs> it's one class in yeah. a country full of kindergarten classes and elementary school classes. Yeah, and it's, like, it's about millions of kids from Ukraine, and it's also about millions more from all over the world who have lived through trauma and conflict and war. And I think, like, telling this story just made me realize just, like, how far from the center that spreads. Yeah, and as a parent myself, I'm obviously focused on the choices that these parents are having to make. And it strikes me that you've picked two families that have made very different choices. Who knows which one is right? Maybe both are right. right. Interesting to me that the family that is physically closest to the war has decided to shield their child from as much as they can from it. And the family that's in relative safety in the far western part of Ukraine is the one that's telling their child everything. Yeah. I mean, what do you make of that? 
I think it's just a reaction to your circumstances. I mean, in Lviv, the war feels farther away because it is farther away, and therefore you kind of have the mental capacity to think about it more, to visit those grave sites, to talk about what's happening. In Kharkiv, Sophia and her mom are living the war in just such a far more real way that they need their brain space to kind of protect them. That's, you know, that's interesting that it's sort of a luxury to be able to tell your child about the war because the trauma of everyday life is sort of lessened, although I'm sure both families are dealing with very, very difficult emotions. And will for a long time. I mean, I think that's what sticks with me about this story is these kids were six, now they're seven. This is the beginning of their lives. And I think what's interesting about this is like, what happens next? The beginning of a generation raised in this circumstance. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Alyssa. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The State of Ukraine. This story was edited by Steve Drummond and Nishant Dehia and produced by Lauren Magaki. Interpretation by Hannah Palomarenko. Please come back for more on the war and its impacts around the world. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as Black experiences, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.